Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Andrew Loney, and he has published a book in the UK, August 2021. Title of the book is Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. An excellent book, very well-received book, which is it's also going to be released in the U.S. in May 2022. It's a daily book, daily mail book of the year, and this is not his only book. He's just published back in 2019, another bestseller titled The Mountbatten's, The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, which is just published in the U.S. on September 7th, 2021. So you can find that on Amazon. But Mr. Loney was educated at Magdalen College, Cambridge, where he was president of the Union and Dunster History Prizeman before studying at and obtaining a master's of American espionage and being awarded his doctorate at Edinburgh University. He's also studied in Asheville, North Carolina. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has been a visiting fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge and senior research fellow in modern British history at the University of Buckingham. He's also the president of the Biographers Club on the Advisory Committee of Biographers International Organization. And was also part of a six-man team which advised on the setting up of the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And his other earlier books are one on Guy Burgess titled Stalin's Englishman, Guy Burgess, The Cold War and the Cambridge Spy Ring, published 2016 in the U.S. He also has another book titled The Edinburgh Literary Companion and John Buchan, The Presbyterian Cavalier, published at least in the U.S. 20, 2002. So, Andrew... Lowney, are you there? I'm here. Delighted uh, to be on the show. Great. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Fascinating book. As somebody who loves history, really opened my eyes to this character, who I didn't really know much. I had a kind of a topical understanding. But can you talk about the background of, of how you got started in writing this book, Traitor King, about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor? Well, there have been lots of books about the Windsors, but they always focus on the abdication uh, and then the, the period after the abdication is, is generally covered in a few pages. But 36 years elapsed between the abdication and the Duke's death and, and 50 years until Wallace died. And so I thought I'd look at that period. I'd always felt that his period after this, when he was cast into exile, frozen out from the royal family, uh, and really got up to quite a lot of mischief, I thought, with the Nazis, um, should be explored further. And the conventional line with historians was that he was um, an innocent dupe, that the Nazis had targeted him as a possible British uh, Pétain figure or Gauleiter, but that he had um, not actually um, intrigued with them. But all the evidence that I'd seen suggested that he had been much more active than people realized. So I decided to go into the archives, and the, particularly the American archives were very good here because the British ones had been weeded. Uh, and I found that my instincts were right, that he, he was not the innocent, that he, uh, for various reasons, was sympathetic to the Nazis. Uh, he was determined to do some sort of peace deal with them, even as late as, as 1941, that uh, he was flattered by their attentions. Uh, and it was a way of get, also getting back at the British royal family and a way of making Wallace feel that he was someone uh, having given up the throne. And so for people in the USA who may not have known the story of the abdication, can you talk about the time and date of when the Duke abdicated and his relationship with Wallace? 
Yes, the background is the uh, he was the Prince of Wales. He inherited. Um, he became King Edward VIII in January 1936 when his father died, uh, and the abdication crisis really blew up uh, in December of 1936. Uh, when he basically said he was determined to marry his girlfriend, Wallace Simpson, who was an American divorcee he'd first met in 1931. Uh, and he was faced with a choice whether he basically took up the throne or he married Wallace and he chose Wallace. Uh, that's the conventional story. It's much more complicated than that. He could, I think, have married Wallace and had a morganatic marriage. So she wasn't queen. That's in effect what they had. Um, and he was based, or he could have married her after being crowned. But he chose, in a sense, to get into this fight. He was maneuvered into it uh, because, in, in many ways, the, the royal household, the politicians didn't want him to be king. They didn't like the fact he was so pro German, that he wanted to actively involve himself in politics, which, of course, is not allowed in our constitution. Uh, that uh, there were suspicions that Wallace was actually a German spy. Uh, and that he really was temperamentally unsuited to be a monarch. He was lazy, he wasn't very bright, uh, he was indiscreet. So Wallace gave the British an opportunity to get rid of him, and they used the support of the Dominion prime ministers, or rather the lack of support, to, to maneuver him out. And so his brother became the new king, and he, within a year, he only lasted a year, 37. So what happens to him? He got a very, he had a substantial... Uh, amount of money came from the, the public purse, or at least the royals. And can you explain what happened to him after he abdicated? Yes. So he made his famous abdication speech uh, uh, on the 12th of December 1936, which is where I begin the book. And he then goes into exile. And he goes basically to Austria while Wallace waits in, in the south of France, because they have to be apart until the decree absolute of, the, of her divorce comes through, and then they can marry. But meanwhile, there are huge tensions with the family. Um, he's wanting £25,000 a year, which in current values is, is a considerable sum of money, probably multiply that by, by 20. Uh, and it's discovered that he's actually saved quite a lot of money. He's not been honest about his financial position. Uh, and so this is the beginning of the sort of rancor within the family. Uh, um, there's also a sense that he's brought dishonor on the royal family and that he will overshadow his brother. Uh, his supporters tend to be supporters of Oswald Mosley, who is a, a pro-Nazi British politician. Uh, and there's a great suspicion that, that he's a dangerous figure. So he has to be kept out of Britain so that he can't really upstage his brother. Right. So they're trying to keep him from really coming back. So he's in France at that time, traveling around with this large retinue, 20 to 25 servants, and just this kind of ostentation and, and uh, he really wants to maintain kind of his royal sensibility. So he still wants to be uh, talked to as a title and have people go through the formal kind of etiquette for a royal. And Yes, and it, exactly. He wants to keep the same lifestyle. I mean, he wants the same luxurious lifestyle. So he has staff and livery, uh, as you say, very extensive numbers of people working for him, including several chauffeurs, several valets. Um, several maids just to turn down the beds at night. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he's, he wants to sort of show that he can live in exactly the same way uh, as right. he, he lived before. And that was a kind of a, a bone of contention was whether uh, Wallace was going to get a proper title. So there was all kinds of issues that, but he also was traveling around. Can you talk about 
kind of his initial travels and his kind of social networking that he did in Europe after he uh, was in exile? Yeah, he got very close to a man called Charles Bedder, who's an American, half American, half French, who was inventor of the time motion study. And it was Bedder who lent him his castle in the Loire Valley, the Chateau de Candy, to get married in. And he sort of became obliged to Bedder. Bedder was very interested in international peace. Uh, he, in effect, in effect, was a Nazi agent. He had lots of operations in Nazi Germany, and he needed to keep the authorities there sweet. And he basically... Um, um, persuaded the Duke to, to, to mount, a, in effect, a state visit of Germany in October 1937, where he was to meet Hitler, uh, meet all the Nazi leaders, people like Goering and Goebbels, uh, tour a concentration camp, um, the, the SS, uh, and even to meet Hitler. Uh, and Bedo was part of a whole circle of very unfortunate friends that he befriended at this moment. Uh, who were sympathetic to the Nazis and felt they could use the Duke for their own ends. Right. So, and there was always, the Germans were always wanting to make peace with England or the UK for the war. So they didn't want to fight. So it kind of seemed like he was one of their, or trying to make him a pawn of that uh, aim to, to have a peace treaty or something, but it gets more. So he meets Hitler, they hile Hitler each other. He does the kind of fascist salute with Hitler but he's always thinking he has kind of grandiose visions of his possible future in England, correct? Yes. I mean, he thinks he'll, he'll come back, uh, he'll be invited back, um, and that he can sort of, in some ways, get back at his brother. So, um, uh, I mean, the, the, the pro German feeling was actually um, the royal family had it, many people in the aristocracy and business in Britain had it. But after the Munich crisis, uh, and certainly after the, the summer of 1939, when people realized that Hitler couldn't be appeased, everyone realized there had to be war and he had to be stopped, except the Duke of Windsor, who continued this belief that the real enemy was communism, that Germany should be allowed to face them and not have to fight a war on two fronts, and that a peace deal would, would be in everyone's interest. And he continued to feel that even up to the entry of America into the war in December 1941. So he, he was out on, on a... On a on a limb there. I mean, there were politicians in Britain, apart from Mosley, I mean, even people like Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary, who were entertaining overtures from the Germans right through 1940, uh, uh, through intermediaries in the Vatican and, 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 for example, in Switzerland. Right. So he's part of this kind of move. And it's interesting because Churchill is an important figure in this story because he's tr trying to handle uh, the Duke of Windsor with a lot of missive. You've got these, all of these letters that Churchill's sending about what to do with the Duke of Windsor. How do, how does the, the UK uh, prime minister and the Royals handle the Duke of Windsor and the Duchess once war breaks out? Well, it's almost unprecedented, but, but Windsor has been under police or intelligence surveillance since the, the probably since 1935. Uh, and so the reports are coming to um, Churchill. He knows what's going on. In fact, even the police protection officers are reporting his movements and who he's seeing. Um, and uh, also Churchill could, they could read the, the, the ultra decrypts. So they were perfectly aware of what he was doing in his associations. Uh, and um, it, they realized that something had to be done, that he had to be neutralized. But Churchill had been a great supporter of his during the abdication. But when he realized that, that in fact, he was a traitor to his own country, 
um, his views changed considerably and he would have nothing to do with, with the, the Juga, certainly after the war. And at one point at the beginning of the war, he threatened him with court-martial. Uh, so they realized they needed to neutralize him, which is why he was sent off as governor of the Bahamas. It was felt that, that this was a sort of exile and he couldn't get up to mischief there. But of course he did. He was very close to America. He kept in contact with various people, uh, with the isolationists. And he, he did try and change um, public opinion there. And the British were always determined to keep him out of America where, because he, he could uh, get some popular support against the war. And he was, I mean, the background of him is that he was actually considered, at least in kind of the international media, is to be a dashing kind of figure, right? So there he had admirers and he was followed by the media. Isn't that correct? So the, the, Yes, yes. I mean, he was good looking. He was charismatic. I mean, certain parallels with Prince Harry now. He was very popular. He was saw himself as a modernizer. Uh, and so he was always much more interested in the States than, than sorry, he was much more popular in the States than in Britain. Uh, he, he loved the States, he loved the freedom uh, and the way of life there. He had, it was a place where he wasn't really, he could behave, sorry, misbehave rather, he could behave exactly as he wanted. He had a lot of American girlfriends, for example. He was always in Long Island. Uh, and so it was a place of freedom for him. Uh, so that was the one good thing about going to the Bahamas, that, that he was at least close to America. And he became very friendly with Americans and eventually spent half his time in the States, either in Palm Beach or Newport or New York. He actually had a, a flat at the Waldorf Astoria. Right. So he's living really at the top, like the top level of society. But even before he left Spain, like there's communiques be between Ribbentrop and these other people. And I think you said that he... I think he did something traitorous, which was to create a back of a potential back channel to yes. that would break. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when when the war breaks out, he 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 uh, escapes to Spain and Portugal, and it's uh, the plan is that he will be flown back from Portugal by the British. But while he's in Spain and Portugal, he's targeted by the Germans uh, in a, something called Operation Willie to be this British Goliath figure, and this is while the peace negotiations are going on. And he's part of this, and he uh, is going in and out of the German embassy. Uh, he's dispensed with his protection. Uh, he's talking to them. We know this because the, the, the documentation was captured after the war and, and actually published. So we see all the telegrams that are going to and fro from the Germans and, and the reports from the various agents who are meeting him. Uh, and I think the really important uh, evidence is not just this diplomatic traffic, but that um, He's, 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 he's actually living with a German agent in Lisbon called um, Ricardo Espirito Santo, who's a banker. Uh, and there is a telegram. The, the line is that even when he goes to the Bahamas, he's going to hold himself ready to come back should the Germans invade Britain uh, and become king. George VI would flee, Churchill would, would go, uh, and probably there would be another prime minister, someone like Lloyd George. Uh, and I think the really important evidence is there is a telegram that he writes to Esprito de Santo in uh, August 1940 from Bermuda on his way to the Bahamas saying this, he is ready to come back. This is communicating with the enemy in code during a war, which is a capital offence. I mean, many, many people in Britain were executed for far less. So, I mean, he's jolly lucky that he, he wasn't executed because people knew exactly at, at the highest levels what he was doing. But it was clearly so embarrassing that it had to be hushed up. And there was uh, extraordinary efforts after the war to suppress these German documents uh, and to basically bury the story. 
Right, and that involved Churchill again. So Churchill is again trying to bury the story, but the Americans also have the same documents that came after the war. They were discovered in Germany with all, like I think it was Ribbentrop's uh, stuff. Well, the Ribbentrop's an important figure too because there, I think there was a rumor that Ribbentrop was a lover of Wallace, correct? That's right. I mean, he was certainly very close and he supposedly sent to 17 coronations a day to reflect the number of times they'd slept together. Uh, but he'd been sent to as German ambassador in London to to talk to her because they were, you know, they were known to each other. Um, but you're absolutely right. The material was found by the Americans, uh, and they honourably said this is important material that needs to be made public. We're not going to just cover up the embarrassment of the British. But Eisenhower was brought into this. He actually sided with Churchill, and a whole series of very important uh, American political and diplomatic figures were involved in the cover up. But, and the real heroes are the American historians who said, no, this is scholarship and it needs to be, it needs to be made public. But right. even so, the British managed to delay the public knowledge of these documents by 12 years, from 1945 to 1957. Yeah, no, it's really remarkable. And then Ribbentrop gets killed at uh, Nuremberg. He's, he's part of the, I mean, it's such an incredible story. And when he, when the Duke of Windsor, he, he is in, uh, the Bahamas, he becomes kind of the oversight. Can you talk about his lifestyle and how he lived in the U.S.? And he was visiting with Roosevelt, so he was really at the upper crust. And how can you talk about what went on during the war here in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, he spent a lot of time in the States. He stayed with Roosevelt on numerous occasions. Um, uh, Roosevelt, I think, was suspicious of him, but he sort of kept in with him. Uh, and he knew all the American presidents. I mean, he later on uh, was close to Nixon and Kennedy. Uh, uh, so he always had the, these very high-level links. He was very close to American businessmen like Clint Murchison, Robert Young, uh, he, who often gave him stock stock tips, uh, Joseph Davis, um, Meriwether Post. All, all these people were his, his close friends. He, in fact, I think, was a lover of Walter Chrysler Jr., uh, the Duke, of, the Duke of, of Windsor. So he moved very much at the top level of American society, the Biddles, people like that. Uh, so he was very, very well connected, uh, both politically and um, uh, socially. And it, I mean, it's his social life, it seems like when I'm reading the book, the social life is very much a, an important aspect of he and his wife's existence. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they were entertained royally. They, they um were very close to Jimmy Donahue, who was the heir to the Woolworth fortune. Uh, in fact, he was a lover of Wallace, and, and, and there is some suggestion that there may have been some sort of attraction between Donahue, who was gay, and the Duke of Windsor. And he basically bankrolled them for years. Uh, he was the one who paid for the cruises they took around the Mediterranean. They were great spongers of people. Um, they actually would attend events, be, were paid to attend events. They would vet um, guest lists. But they entertained themselves extremely extensively, you know, uh, often 24 for dinner, two or three times a week. Uh, one night, uh, the member of staff said, gosh, there are only six for dinner tonight. And Wallace replied, yes, but they're all kings. Um, and that's sort of people, Maria Callas, people like that, that they, they were entertaining, um, going to extensive balls. They were very friendly with the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds had lent them one of their houses. When, when when the Duke first came, to, to left Britain. So um, they, they knew sort of everyone in those circles. And the opinions, I mean, they had a strange relationship. He was 
that for somebody with that those kinds of resources and background, he had a peculiar personality. Can you talk about how how he operated in the world? Yes, I mean he never really grew up emotionally or indeed physically as a young man, uh, a young boy. He'd had mumps. His uh, growth was stunted. He didn't need to shave very often. Um, and he, like baby talk, all his girlfriends basically had to indulge him. And it, it was a sort of mother-daughter, mother-son relationship. And that, of course, was part of the attraction with Wallace. She'd never had children. They'd both had emotionally difficult childhoods. Uh, the Duke's parents had been very distant and strict with him. Uh, he liked to be beaten. He was a masochist. Uh, and so the ruder and more awful that Wallace was to him, as she was a very dominant figure in the relationship, the better he liked it. And often he would go to go to bed in tears. She would humiliate him publicly. Uh, indeed, these affairs with people like Jimmy Donahue were there to, to publicly humiliate him. And he put up with it. Um, he was absolutely besotted with her, whereas I think she was bored by him uh, and had been emotionally blackmailed into marrying him. Uh, he's threatened to kill himself if she didn't. So she felt chained in this relationship with this man who'd never, boy, who'd never grown up, uh, who had very simple tastes uh, and where she just felt completely trapped. So it wasn't the great romance everyone imagines. It was a living nightmare. Right. And he never like read books. He had access to so many resources, but he was, I mean, it seems like he was very superficial, shaved once a week. Like there was, he was almost like kind of a, royal peter pan type figure or something like that peter, to me peter pan is a great is a great analogy absolutely he had no inner life so um um you know for example churchill would give him some of the books he'd written and he he just said i'll put them on the shelf with the others um listening to a mozart concert he asked someone if, if mozart had written anything else i mean incredibly ignorant given you know the position he had he just liked playing golf playing with his, his stocks and shares a bit of gardening a bit of gossip uh, and that's it. I mean, he was a very superficial man. Uh, yeah, with, and also, I mean, he was a bisexual. I mean, it's apparently he was with this Chrysler heir or businessman. And so he had a, they had an active life outside of each other, even though they were together for 20 or 30 years. Yes, I mean, that that's all, a lot of that stuff's been covered up. I'm sure there were other lovers, but stuff emerges from um, other accounts. In fact, the people who are still alive that I've talked to um, uh, who were gay, who are part of those circles know about uh, his sort of secret gay life. Uh, and in fact, the fame, one of the famous accounts is Scotty Bowers, who was the, the barman in Hollywood, who um, uh, procured people for Hollywood stars. And the Duke and Duchess of Windsor spent a lot of time in Hollywood, and Scotty would find them, uh, both of them, boys and girls. Uh, and he actually devotes a chapter in his book to uh, what he did for the Windsors at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Right. No, it's it's incredible. That guy's that book is incredible. You mentioned the title of that. And most people and you said that a lot of those stories have been verified, not just about the Windsors, but with other people as well. Yes. I mean, it's you know, some people think it's a tainted source. But but all the research I've done on Scotty Bowers is that he's absolutely um, the real the real thing is, you know, what he says absolutely stands up. And I think his ghostwriter and indeed the pr producer of the of the TV series. Um, did quite a lot of back, background checking, uh, and they certainly persuaded me with the material that they they showed me about about Scotty. And so, I mean, they just were like the idle rich. It's almost strange because he he was like uh, an upper class person that seemed to have everything, but also seemed to be bored. 
Like they had to do things to make things exciting, right? Yes. I mean, they were very restless. That's why there was this constant traveling, this constant attaining the, the need to meet, to have new experiences. Um, they, they had no purpose in life. They had no proper job. Uh, I mean, even though the royal family was not prepared to give them a, a diplomatic post again after the Bahamas, uh, he could clearly have done charitable work. Um, he could have used his name uh, in, in a very beneficial way. But they didn't. They gave nothing, to, did nothing really for charity. They tried to make money by exploiting the royal brand, endorsing things. Um, but they they were only interested in themselves uh, and um, not loyal to their friends. They mixed with inc increasingly with equally superficial people who just used them. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but like, just the the dinners, the type of energy that she put into it and all the silverware and everything was just really something else. It was a really, really interesting aspect of their lives. Can you talk about what happened, the death that happened in the Bahamas and yes. the Duke of Windsor's involvement in that? Yes. One of the great mysteries is the death of Harry Oakes on the 8th of July, 1943. Harry Oakes was probably the richest man of the Bahamas. He was a, a Canadian businessman who became a tax exile there. He was very friendly with the Windsors. The Windsors actually stayed at his house, Westbourne, when they first came to the Bahamas. Uh, and the Duke was also involved in business activities with Oakes and uh, one of Oakes's business partners, a man called Harold Christie, uh, who was a sort of property developer on the island. Christie uh, and Oakes had fallen out. Uh, Christie had double-crossed Oakes, and Oakes was basically taking his business away from Christie. Christie was close to Mayor Lansky in Miami, uh, and so it was a pretty, pretty grubby sort of scene. And the Duke was there. He always liked to make a quick buck. And he was involved in attempts to basically take money out of the Bahamas, do break currency regulations uh, and invest in Mexico through a bank that had been set up by uh, a man called Axel Venegren, who was a German agent. Uh, and um, the, the death of uh, Oakes, as I say, has never been uh, solved. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that Christie was behind it. The Duke was heavily involved. In fact, he... Uh, rather than bring in the local police, he actually sent the local police commissioner off to Trinidad, got him out of the way. He didn't call in Scotland Yard or indeed the FBI in New York. He called in two crooked cro co cops from Miami to investigate it who were close to Lansky. Uh, and it was quite clear he was determined on a cover-up. He didn't want any light shone on the death of, of Oakes because it would have revealed his own involvement in these shady business dealings. Uh, and in fact, he was he tried to frame Oakes' son-in-law, a man called Alfred de Maragny. Uh, and Maragny was only saved from being um, hanged um, by some good defense work at the trial, which showed that evidence had been planted against him um, by these crooked cops. So it is an extraordinary story. Every time anyone has tried to reopen it, it's either been shut down by the authorities or people have been threatened or indeed some people have even uh, died. So it's, um, uh, and lots of that material has just been destroyed. One of the interesting things I found is that the British files have been completely weeded, but there is material in the files in the Bahamas, which sheds light on it. Um, and it was, it was a really gruesome crime too, right? Wasn't he like castrated or something like that? Uh, well, I mean, he was found uh, lying in bed. He'd been basically hit with, with what could have been some sort of boat hook, um, but he'd also been set on fire uh, exactly. There'd been an attempt to set his genitals on fire, 
uh, and, and make it look like a sort of voodoo killing with feathers scattered around. So there are lots of theories about it, um, but it's very clear that Christie's didn't have an alibi for, for the time when it was there. He was supervising it. Uh, and um, it, it, I think it's pretty clear that Lansky was sent in two hitmen to, 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 to kill him, and then they returned to Miami. Interesting. And so also, he also had an autobiography that was very well uh, received or very well read. Can you talk about how his autobiography was put together and how successful it was? Yes, he wrote a book called The King's Story. He used a man from Life magazine called Charles Murphy to, to ghost it. Um, it only uh, went up to, to 1936, to the abdication. Uh, and so uh, he, he did it with articles later, uh, extend that. But it became a bestseller, actually, more in the States than in Britain. And then uh, Wallace did her own book, again, after various attempts with different uh, ghostwriters with Charles Murphy. Um, what's interesting is her version of events doesn't always tally in with, um, with the Duke. Uh, she kept falling out with ghostwriters, particularly with one called Cleveland Amory, because he just didn't believe he, uh, what she was saying. He just said that she made stuff up. Uh, and he felt it was a very dishonest book. But they made a lot of money from giving interviews to papers, writing articles, uh, and they sort of, like Harry and Meghan now, they began to shape the narrative of how they were perceived. Uh, they were constantly suing journalists who wrote things that they didn't like or trying to get books uh, banned that they didn't like. Uh, a case was, was Clint Murchison had a, um, owned Henry Holt, and they tried to stop a book by a man called Jeffrey Bocker, so they, they were very manipulative in the way that they, they, they projected their image. Uh, and the fascinating parallels with Harry and Meghan, you know, the same thing of a, a young prince, charismatic, marrying a young American divorcees, breaking up with the family, um, uh, and debates over finance and security and parental um, upbringings and all sorts of things. So it's really interesting to see it played out again, you know, um, 80 years later. And it's the same thing. Like they're the Megan and and uh, and Harry here are regaled. They're seen as celebrities. People are following everywhere in the gossip magazines and stuff like that. Going where they're in L.A. or where are they? So it really is fascinating that. And you see that tension that uh, reminds me of your book of like what's the Royals doing and how is Harry responding? And uh, really fascinating to see it happen all over again. Again, exactly in the briefing and the different camps and the breakdown of the relations between the siblings and the sisters-in-law. Exactly, uh, and and it's a PR war, a second PR war, and it'd be very interesting, uh, you know, in some ways to to to, to if, if they realise the parallels. I'm sure the royal family do, but whether Harry and Meghan are aware of just how close the story is repeating itself. True, right, and so the, then the brothers and the sisters don't see each other, then they talk, they're probably talking behind the scenes. And it is interesting to see how the head of the royal camp kind of made sure that they they kept tabs on Duke. So when he passed away, they really, I mean, a lot of the records they wanted, right? Exactly. I think the, you know, the, 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 it, it's, uh, I used to write about the intelligence services and I have to say the royal family are much more secretive and much more like the mafia. Uh, so absolutely, after the Duke died, they sent people in, royal librarians and used relations to recover embarrassing literature, to get artifacts taken back. And it's all now gone into the royal archives and I think will probably never be seen. It's They're, they're very good at, at collecting embarrassing material uh, and suppressing it. 
Uh, and it's only really because material was in the American archives, Portuguese archives, French and German archives, that I was able to do this book. For example, the, the French Secret Service were also uh, had the couple under surveillance. So that, that's why we have the reports about Wallace and her affairs with, with Jimmy Donahue. And the FBI had extensive files on them uh, and were collecting information on them. So that was also uh, invaluable. Um, yeah, didn't uh, didn't yeah. Roosevelt himself say that like he wanted to keep tabs on them? I, can't, I think that was in your book, right? Yes, he did. Absolutely, he had a whole series of people. Uh, Adolf Bell um, had people doing stuff. Um, uh, there were also, I mean, the, the the naval intelligence were keeping tabs. Uh, it, you know, the Americans were doing a pretty good job, and of course, they were also watching his friends, people like Axel Venegren, who they thought were actually building U-boat re refueling stations in the Bahamas. Uh, Charles Beddow, who eventually committed suicide because of his activities with the Germans in, in North Africa, uh, and and others. So um, we, we we this picture is really created because of these intelligence files, fortunately kept. And I have to say, the Americans are much better about releasing information. They're much more transparent than the British, and you know, and thank goodness. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we talked in the pre-show about how many associations he had with German assets or people one step off of German intelligence or things like that for many years. It really is remarkable that he was not, I mean, and the, the, your theme in your book too is that he talked a lot, but it seemed like that for somebody from the royal family, you wouldn't want to be associated with that at all, but he didn't seem to have a problem with it. So pretty remarkable. Yeah. And he was always warned, you know, there, he was shown intelligence reports about their activities and said that, you know, warned that he shouldn't get involved with them. It was not only embarrassing, but it was dangerous. Uh, and the, he just ignored it. So, for example, during the beginning of the Second World War, uh, he had a job inspecting the French defences. And he reported, he, he reported this back to the British. He was a liaison officer. Uh, but he also reported this, this information to Charles Beddow, who took it straight to the German ambassador in The Hague and sent it back to Berlin. So the result was the Germans changed their war plans and they went round the side of the Maginot Line. So the, the invasion of France in May 1940 uh, and their victory can be traced back to the Duke of Windsor's treachery or indiscretion, however you want to look at it. Right. And time and time again, there's, a, there's an American diplomat called George Messersmith. Uh, and he found that if he gave anything to, to the Duke, uh, it instantly popped up, that information was passed on to, to the Germans or the Italians. Um, uh, and so people realized that he just couldn't be trusted. He came back from France in January 1940 and tried to intrigue against the uh, Prime Minister of the time, Neville Chamberlain, to try and actually get a peace party going. And this is after the declaration of war. Right. And I was incredible, too, because he was uh, friends with JFC Fuller, too, who was part of the, I think he was a part of the BUP, right, British Union? He uh, was, absolutely. This was a major general. So um, the, he was part of this plot. Um, and what's also interesting is that relationship with Joe Kennedy. There's quite a lot of material on Windsor in, in Joe Kennedy's letters. Um, and Kennedy was a notorious kind of appeaser or like peace, like he's, he didn't want to fight. So exactly. he, they were very much on the same side. Yeah. And one of the other interesting relationships is with, with William Bullitt, the American ambassador in Paris, with whom Wallace had an affair. Uh, she had affairs with all sorts of people. Uh, Count Ciano, the, the Italian um, diplomat, son-in-law of Mussolini. Uh, and, um, well, we talked about Ribbentrop. So she used, in some ways, her feminine wiles right. for political ends. 
it's amazing. It's amazing they did, never got arrested or, or didn't get put to death. I mean, they really were cl close to the line, if not over it. Really fascinating. Well, I think they were over the line, but I think it was too embarrassing to have the former king uh, basically uh, as a traitor. So the, the only thing they could do was to try and kill the story so that no one was aware of it. People clearly talked about it. And it's interesting, we've got the postal censorship uh, papers um, during the war. So when people went and had dinner with them in the Bahamas and wrote, they were often right home and talk about the sort of discussions that they had at the dinner table and how treasonous they were. And those papers were kept, they're in the archives and you can now read these accounts. And of course the British and the Americans were aware. So they were monitoring him very closely. If you think the British, the Americans and the French were all spying on the couple. Yeah, it's an incredible book. Really, I loved reading the book. I, I read this book in like 24 hours. I couldn't put it down. Again, the title is Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. doesn't come out in the States till May 2022. It's out in the UK, but people can still in the US can probably order it through third parties, correct? That, that's right. Yes, they can get hold of it through third parties. Third parties. And uh, do you have a website or social media if anybody wants to reach out to you or... Yes, absolutely. Uh, we'd like to hear from them. Um, they just basically type in my name, Andrew Loney. Uh, it'll bring up, uh, I, I work in publishing, I run a big literary agency, so they can contact me there. Uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and there's also a, a, a website for the book called www.traitorking.com. So I'll put so, that in the show notes, yeah. So there are lots of... of um, uh, ways of reaching me. I mean, frankly, just Google me and, and you'll find ways. Gotcha. And your last name is spelled L-O-W-N-I-E, Andrew right. Lowney. And again, the book, Trader King, congratulations. Really excellent book. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great. Well, stay there. Hold on. Stop.